Happy Resurrection Day, Community Covenant. So glad to be with you. I want to greet you, uh, and there might be some guests, uh, hopefully, there probably is, some guests joining us. So if you are joining us for the first time, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors at Community Covenant Church. And today, we want to, we want to consider a traditional Easter greeting that many of you are probably aware of. The initiator of the greeting says, He is risen. And then the responders to the greeting say, He is risen indeed. And so let's try that a couple times. And even at home, I, I hope you can get after it a little bit. So, He is risen. He is risen. I'm listening. And then one more time, He is risen indeed. Okay, let's start. Um, I'm very aware that we live in really anxious times, and this is a particularly anxious moment in this life. Yet I want to begin today by raising your anxiety a little bit, a couple of notches. I hope you'll forgive me. I think it'll be worth it. So there's a phrase that deeply affects every human being on the planet. And that phrase is, when God is silent, when God is silent. We've all had seasons in our lives when we felt like God was silent. We've longed for God to speak, and we couldn't hear a thing from him. Even confirmed atheists say that they would believe if they could hear God speaking to them. There was a German scholar, theologian, named Helmut Theaki. He lived through the Nazi Holocaust, and one of his books is titled The Silence of God. It was published in 1962 after a period of, of research and reflection after the war. And in a nutset, sorry, in a nutshell, here's what he found. Anxiety is the secret wound of modern man. Initially, his research indicated, or he thought, that our natural tendency was related to a fear of death. But World Wars I and II proved otherwise. An example that he gave in his book is that the Russian soldiers were more afraid of pain than they were of death. And Tilaki traces our anxiety to a fear of emptiness. And that our anxiety can actually be traced to a longing to know where God is. Here's Tilaki's hypothesis for his research. Where is God in the face of the mass slaughter of war or the frightening development and I inserted universal pandemic? which seems to press us inexorably toward destruction and final catastrophe. Now, the fourth century theologian and philosopher, Augustine, came to the same conclusion as Tilaki when he prayed that famous prayer. He said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And today I would like for us to consider how a personal encounter with Jesus Christ can push back our anxiety. 
we will consider what's called the Emmaus Road Discourse or the Emmaus Road um, Narrative. It's found in Luke chapter 24, verses 35 to, uh, 13 to 35. And if you're new to the Bible, the, the, the Bible's uh, divided up into two portions, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the, the New Covenant, the New Testament. And the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the third one. And chapter 24 is the last chapter in Luke's Gospel. And if you're not familiar with the Bible or not near a Bible, uh, then you can jump on your smartphone or your computer, go to a browser, and just type in Luke 24, and it will, it will take you there. But what I'd like to do is read the passage. It's 22 verses, if my math is correct. So it takes a few minutes. Um, I think it'll be worth your while. Uh, it's a very interesting passage. And one thing that, that we've been doing in our services before all this is that we have been inviting um, people to stand for the reading of God's Word. So what I'm going to do is invite you to stand with me as I read this out. In your pajamas, in your homes, if you're in a car, probably don't want to stand for that. Uh, but let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. By the way, some of you aren't standing, so come on, let's do this. Get up there, stand there in your home with your kids, and all that good stuff. So Luke 24, 13 to 35. Here's some context for it, sorry. It's, it's Easter Sunday. You have some really discouraged disciples leaving Jerusalem and walking to this village called Emmaus, which was probably their home. And it's a terrible day for them because they don't know what really happened. So I'll begin in verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to Jesus, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and 
And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Pray with me. Kind Father, thank you for this opportunity. I pray that in these next several moments that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see and experience and encounter you more and more and more. We give this time to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What we have on the road to Emmaus this Easter morning are two downcast, dismayed, and devastated disciples. They couldn't recognize Jesus. It seems that they had become spiritually blind. I think it's important for us to notice, to admit that even disciples of Jesus, even committed disciples of Jesus can suffer from spiritual blindness. I would like to spend the next several minutes considering two questions. We'll put them up on the screen, I'll give them to you, and then we'll go back and look at those one at a time. The first question, What causes spiritual blindness? What prevents us from recognizing and encountering Jesus? The second question is, how can we have a personal encounter with Jesus? So let's go back to that first question. What causes spiritual blindness? I have two points from the text in that regard. Number one, we tend to think that our greatest need is a change of circumstances instead of a change of heart. Notice Cleopas, uh, the second part of verse 19 and the first part of 21. Cleopas says he was a prophet. Past tense, he was a prophet. And then in verse 21, but we had hoped. Again, it's past tense. The Jewish people were looking for a geopolitical king, much in the same way that David was, wanting Jesus to liberate them from Roman oppression. Instead, they got a servant king intent on liberating the soul. One of my mentors years ago said to me that expectations are the root of all hurt. And I've come to believe that that's true. The times in your life, for instance, that you've been really wounded or hurt by someone else, it's probably because, most likely because, you had an expectation that was dashed or broken. And these folks had an expectation for a geopolitical kingdom. 
all throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples still didn't get it, that it wasn't going to be a geopolitical kingdom, a servant king, liberating the soul. The disciples certainly had moments of insight and revelation in the three and a half years that they walked with Jesus and learned with Jesus. But in the end, in the end, we find true liberation. We must come to the end of ourselves and see our need for a savior. We don't need a king, we need a savior. This is both an initial need for people to um, allow salvation to take root in their heart, and it's also an ongoing need for those of us who are active and intentional, committed followers of Jesus. A second posture that can result in spiritual blindness is we can fail to recognize Jesus in the ordinary. Like with these disciples on the road, Jesus is closer to us than we realize. Jesus became an ordinary person to show ordinary people like us God's extraordinary love. I have a friend that's a pastor, and he, he told this story one time in church. And I've heard it in other contexts, but the story goes that he was an adolescent, and he was out in front of his home, sitting on the curb, and he was mesmerized by some ants in the gutter. And we've all probably been mesmerized by ants. Like, how does that work? You know, they're all just busy and everywhere all the time. And then he looked up and he saw this wall of water coming down the gutter. Apparently, one of the neighbors was, was watering their lawn or something. And he saw this wall of water coming. And for a minute, he, he, he thought, oh, gee, I wish I could become an ant and go down there and warn them of this coming destruction. Well, that's very much like what Jesus did. He became one of us to warn us of destruction. Right now today, God is active in your life. He's using people. He's using these current circumstances in our world in an attempt to reveal himself to us, to draw us closer to himself. The arc of biblical teaching from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that God doesn't take us around trouble. He takes us through trouble. And there's three things that happen as he takes us through trouble. Number one, he'll go with us. He goes with us as we go through trouble. Number two, he teaches us things along the way as we go through trouble. And the third thing is we go in his strength and his power, which is available to us. And remember, even the disciples can suffer from spiritual blindness. So I have a question for you, just to take a moment and consider today. Uh, if we could, yes, here's the question. Where are your current difficulties or unrealistic expectations preventing you from seeing the active presence of God in your life right now? Just take a moment. Think about that for a second. Where are your current difficulties or unrealistic expectations preventing you from seeing the active presence of Jesus in your life? Unless we're willing to see him 
in the routine and the ordinary, we just might miss him. And that brings us to the second question. How can we have a personal encounter with Jesus? I have three examples, three examples from the text. The first one in verse 26, we find Jesus giving a succinct summary of the gospel. Jesus said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? God is both infinitely just and infinitely merciful. Now think about that for a moment. It's hard to be both. In fact, most people would say it's impossible. You can't be infinitely just and infinitely merciful. And I would say that Christianity is the only religion or philosophy of life that has an answer for that question. We see, in, um, we, we, we see infinite justice and infinite mercy on the cross. They intersect at the cross. Infinite justice and infinite mercy intersect at the cross. That's what makes Christianity, it's, well, it's one of the things that make Christianity different than any other world religion or philosophy of life. In verse 26, Jesus is saying that he had to die in order to make full redemption available to humankind. Again, Cleopas thought that they needed a general. He didn't fully realize it, that it needed a savior more. Jesus wants to go deeper than our circumstances. He wants to heal the ultimate anxiety in our heart, in our soul, which is caused by our separation from God. If Telechi and Augustine and lots of other theologians are correct. So with that in mind, I have bad news and I have good news. Most people prefer to hear the bad news first. God demands perfect holiness to enter into his presence. The tiniest, most minuscule sin will separate you from God for eternity. To miss the mark by even a millimeter is still to have missed the mark. Here's the good news. It's actually great news. Jesus, the Christ, lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He was brutally murdered to take away our sins. He was resurrected on the third day. As our hearts are awakened to that act of perfect love, we receive the gift of God's righteousness. Isaiah refers to it as a robe. It's, it's actually Christ's robe of righteousness that comes around us. And it's unearnable. It's not about what you do or did or didn't do or will do or anything else. It's about what Christ has done. And it's rooted in history. So it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. This brings us to the second point regarding how we can have a personal encounter or relationship with Jesus. We encounter Jesus in the Bible. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. One thing that's important to realize is the New Testament, of course, hasn't been written yet. So when they talk about the scriptures, they're, they're talking about the Old Testament. They were on the seven-mile journey 
which takes probably two to three hours, depending on the terrain. And here we are. This, this may be the most important Bible study of all time, walking on the road to Emmaus. What we learn from this verse, and there's others scattered throughout the New Testament, is that the, the whole Old Testament is really about Jesus. What Jesus is doing on the Emmaus Road is he's opening their minds to really understand the meaning of Scripture. Jesus is saying that the whole Old Testament is actually about me. That's why their hearts were burning. Once our hearts are awakened to what Jesus is saying here, we begin to see how the whole Bible, both Old and New Testament, only tells one story, the story of redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. There's creation, there's sin, there's redemption, and there's restoration. It's one story. Here's an illustration. Um, it's, it's a 20-year-old movie. Most of you have probably seen it. Uh, the Sixth Sense, I think it was 1999, starring uh, Bruce Willis. And it's been said you can only see that movie twice. The first time that we see it, the ending is really quite shocking. I won't give you the end, in case you haven't seen it. It's quite shocking. The second time you see that movie, you will come to be very aware of all the indicators that pointed towards the end. They give us little clues in the movie, but it's quite shocking the first time through. In the same way, once we see are captured by the implications of the resurrection, we begin to look at every passage of the Bible differently. Like when we read the Old Testament, we've talked about this in the last several months at Community Covenant, how when we read the Old Testament, we're to look and see how it points us to the person of Jesus. The third point, how we can have a personal relationship or encounter with Jesus, we encounter Jesus when we come together. Uh, verses 30 and 31. When he, when Jesus reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And see what happens? Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, were they celebrating the Lord's Supper or were they just eating together? You know, the, the Last Supper was just a few days previous. Uh, none of these disciples were in that because they went back to Jerusalem and the 11 were there. Judas had killed himself. Uh, so I don't know that it matters whether it's just in the breaking of bread and having a meal together or if they were, in fact, celebrating the Lord's Supper. But it's the idea of when, we're, when we come together and are with one another to encourage and confront when necessary and to really love each other, that we begin to see Jesus. We begin to encounter Jesus. Again, Jesus is closer than we think. He's already all over your life. These disciples had been devastated. They'd been, they'd been humbled. And in that condition, they encounter the person of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. So the two questions, spiritual blindness. What do we need to overcome that? A change of heart instead of a change of circumstances. Recognizing Jesus in the ordinary, even mundane things of life. How do we have, how does the text tell us we have a personal encounter with Jesus? We stay humble. 
We see our need. We engage our need, both, both before we're believers in Jesus and after. We stay humble. We see our need. We engage the Scripture. We see Christ in the Scripture. And then we begin to see him when we come together to share our lives together in him and with him. As we draw this to a close, I want to turn to the German theologian's conclusions regarding the root of human anxiety and our fear of emptiness. The ultimate fear is what Tilaki would say. Tilaki writes that the positive force that defeats anxiety is what? Love. And that goes along with what John said in 1 John 4, 18. Is it there? Okay, it's not there. Here's what it says. That was Linda, by the way. Told me she's doing the PowerPoint. Anyway, there is no fear in love. 1 John 4, 18. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear, perfect love drives out fear. The more we are awakened to God's perfect love, the more our fear begins to dissipate. Tilaki uh, says that our anxiety is the result of a broken bond, and that God's sacrifice on the cross restores that bond. He says, once we know that we are love, we begin to lose our anxiety. Once we know that we are love, we begin to lose our anxiety. He likened it to holding on tightly to a father's hand in a very dark forest. In both Matthew and Mark's accounts of the crucifixion, they record the anxious final cry of Jesus. You know, we read the words on the page without sometimes considering the emotion that's behind it. But here's what Jesus, how, this is how Jesus cried out at the end of his earthly life. Mark 27, 40, Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, we don't capture the emotion. But here's what I can tell you. One theologian has said that Jesus died screaming. Picture that kind of emotion as he breathed his last. Yet a closer examination of these two verses revealed that even in his excruciating death on the cross, Jesus never let go of his Father's hand. Notice that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, as he died. Jesus is bringing his anxiety to the Father in that moment. And because he did, so can we. We can bring our anxiety to the Father. What do we do now? Well, we stay humble. We stay humble in this, this shelter-at-home moment. And I hope this lasts way beyond the shelter-at-home moment. We read our Bibles. We honestly engage with and connect with other people. 
We have our online community groups. If you'd like to have prayer, you can uh, tell us online, Facebook or YouTube, or you can send an email to info at communitycovenant.church. Info at communitycovenant.church. And if you'd like somebody to call you, if you'd like somebody to pray for you, if you'd like to, to talk with somebody about what you're going through or if you're considering the claims of Jesus, we would really love, love, love to hear from you. Look for God in the ordinary. Let us know in the comments section what you're thinking and how you're feeling.